0: I suppose it's true to say that we often hear of the problems and the difficulties and the disappointments of missionary work, and they're all true. But this afternoon I want to bring before you something that will give the encouragements, and I trust that when you leave this meeting your heart will be encouraged to know what God is doing. But at the same time, I want to speak about the tremendous changes that have taken place in missionary work over recent years. Because missions today are not the same as they were even ten years ago. There have been very great changes. And we need to be informed if our interest is going to be intelligent and if our prayers are going to be focused. So often we can think of the missionary today in terms of the old pith helmet, the man in the jungle, and so on. Well, that kind of work is still going on and still needs to be done. But there's been such a tremendous shift in the population of the world that missions face a totally different situation from what it was 50 years ago. Now, I'd like you to read first with me from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, and verse
1: 3.
0: As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Hear our Lord is giving a general foreview of the events that were to take place in the last days. He gives the general picture and the wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. Those are just the beginning. And then he finishes that section by saying, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached for a testimony to all nations and then Shall the end come? If that verse means anything, it means that before the Lord comes, the church is responsible to give the gospel to the world. He didn't say that the world would be converted, but the world is to be evangelized. That is to say, we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He, he laid out the program, the geographical program in Acts 8 you You'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, the surrounding area, and in Samaria, the adjoining company with a spurious religion, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. They began their witness in Jerusalem, then they extended to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But the fact that Christ has not come yet is an indication that the task of the church is not yet completed. And uh, that is why, why we're having a missionary meeting this afternoon, so that our hearts might be stirred afresh with a vision of possibility. Could it be that our little bit of witness may, be, may result in the last soul being one before the Lord comes. Now, I want to speak about the changes that are taking place. And first of all, the changes in the political realm. When I was a, a youth... The world atlas, if you have a map of the world, it was splotched all over with red. British Empire covered half the globe. And now there's one tiny little dot, you can hardly see it, off the, off the uh, coast of Europe. And that's all that's left, practically, of the British Empire. And we've seen it happen, we've seen it dissolve before our eyes. We're seeing the same thing taking place with America. The influence of America is dwindling, dwindling, dwindling all around the world. There is a tremendous political shift. In 1950, there were four independent nations in Africa. Do you know how many there are today? Forty-five. Now, i guarantee nobody here knows them all. Forty-five independent nations now in Africa. You think of the difference that that's made. So there are tremendous political uh, changes have taken place. Communism began with 17 members of the Communist Party, and now it controls more than one-third of the peoples of the world. So here are tremendous political movements that have affected missionary work very much indeed. It means today that there is no security or tenure for a missionary in any country. Uh, We held a geriatric conference in Toronto for missionaries of my mission, it used to be the China Inland Mission, now it's the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. There were 30 of us there, and we were all between 70 and 90. But it was a very lively gathering, I can tell you, and much reminiscing. But we got them to put down on paper the number of years that they had served on the mission field. And when we got it, it added up to 969. What does that remind you of? Methuselah, yes. He lived 969 years. But if you divide that by 30, it meant that each one of those missionaries had had an average of 30 undisturbed years of missionary work in the countries where they were. Do you know any country in the world today where you could say to a young person, why, you can go and... uh, you can have 30 years, you can have spend your whole life doing missionary work in that country. You can't do that today. The political situation has uh, made the whole world fluid. But the Lord foresaw that. That doesn't mean that we're not to tackle the task because uh, we can't stay for 30 years. When the Lord sent out the 70, He said, if they persecute you in one city, you just go home. Was that what he said? No. He said, if they persecute you in one city, you flee to another city and let them persecute you there. (laughs) And then, if they persecute you there, then don't go home, but just go to another. And that's what's happening in the world today in missionary circles. Now, we had... A 1,300 missionaries in China. But uh, today we have no missionaries in China. We had to leave China and we had to decide, now what do we do? Do we go home or do we go somewhere else? Well, the Lord led us and now our mission is in uh, most of the countries east of India. And uh, because the door to China closed, Hundreds of thousands of people in other countries have heard the gospel. God's got his own strategy. And at the same time, he was doing something very wonderful in China. It seemed stark tragedy. But when you think of what's taken place in China today, you can see that God knew what he was doing. So there's been this tremendous political change that makes the picture quite different. Now, there are very many countries in which uh, foreign, uh, uh, Western missionaries cannot go. They won't have them. And that, you speak about closed doors. The door has closed. But when you use that term, you need to use it very carefully. Do you know any country that is closed to prayer? Do you know any country that's closed to radio? Do you know any country that is closed to the witness of the national Christians? Do you know any country that's closed to the literature, the gospel literature that can get into the country? When we talk about a closed country, we're just saying that Western missionaries can't go there as evangelists because Many can go as business people or as professional people and bear their witness there. So that's the political side. Then the change in social conditions. I don't think there's any challenge to the fact that there is no country in the world today that is not in social turmoil. Your country, my country, New Zealand... We're in social term, well, you only need to look look at your newspaper. Demonstrations and strikes and so on. And it's the same everywhere. You take those 45 nations in Africa. They thought that when they got their independence, that utopia had arrived. And instead of that ever since, most of them have been involved in inter-Nissan warfare, tribal warfare... They're burdened with a terrible debt, and uh, instead of being what they hoped for, their condition is even worse in many cases than it was before. Social conditions have entirely changed. The, uh, there's come more education. And what has that done? It means that in many of the undeveloped countries, there are too many people with a good education. India, for example, there are large numbers of people with degrees but no work. And all kinds of social conditions are developing throughout the world that make it very difficult. Standards are slipping. You think of what happened in our own society here, the slipping of morals, the violence, the drugs, the family structure breaking up. And we've seen all these things just in our little uh, generation, haven't we? It's all been happening before our eyes, but it's only when you get the whole picture before you that you realize what a terrific change has taken place. Economic conditions. Who ever dreamed that America would be the greatest debtor nation in the world. And yet that is true. America is the greatest debtor nation in the world. And uh, if you exclude Switzerland, what what nation isn't in economic trouble? There it is. Every nation, pretty well, is having economic problems. And problems for which there is no solution. When I was in China about 40 years ago, I used to carry around half a million dollars with me. Uh, They weren't American dollars, but uh, it was uh, Chinese dollars. And I remember I had a, it was midwinter and I had borrowed a, A Russian hunting coat to keep me warm. And the man I borrowed it from, he said, now don't lose that because I've been, I'm selling it and I've been promised a half a million dollars for it. Well, uh, while we were traveling toward Tibet, the coat fell out and the man who was in the back didn't notice it. And all of a sudden he called out, the coat's gone. Well, we stopped and got out and looked back. but couldn't see any sign of it. And I thought I'm half a million out of pocket. Uh, But then we saw a cloud of dust and here was a Tibetan horseman riding up and he brought the coat with him. So I gave him a tip of $25,000. I never felt so generous in my life. It was worth two shillings. (laughs) Well, that's what happens when inflation goes mad. By the time the money in China was printed, it had lost half its value. Well, those are conditions that are, they're not as bad as that, but they're pretty bad. I was in Indonesia about 18 months ago, and the Minister of Finance in Indonesia is a Christian man. But over the air, while we were there, in a conference center that belonged to him, he announced, Tomorrow morning, the Indonesian currency is going to be devalued by 45%. Imagine having half your money chopped off in one minute. Those of us who are older can remember a few years ago when we went to bed and the economy, economic conditions in the world were not too bad. And we woke up next morning and found that the Economy of the world was controlled by the Arabs and it happened overnight and the world economy has never recovered since and the day of cheap missions has gone forever I want you to remember that the day of cheap missions has gone forever 20-30 uh, years ago there were countries, cheap countries that you could live in And there were some that were very dear. But when I was in Japan recently, I spoke to a missionary of, not of our society, of another society, and he said, it takes 65,000 US dollars a year to keep my family on the field. That would be 80,000 Australian dollars for one missionary family. They may have had a fairly high standard of living, but that gives you an idea. When you think of the missionary budget of many churches, and you think of the cost that is taking place now with the tremendous upsurge of uh, inflation in many countries, it's a different situation. So that's something that... uh, has changed. Now missionary work is much more expensive and one of the reasons for that is that the great shift of population is away from the country to the cities and it's always far more expensive to live in the cities than it is in the country. So that's in the economic realm. But another tremendous change is that the world for the first time in history is a young people's world. There are more young people under 21 years of age than all the other people in the world put together. 50% of the people in Latin America are under 21 years of age. 40% of the people of India are under 14 years of age. 38% of China are under 15 years of age. And it means that now this is a young people's world. And that has got something to say to the young people of this generation. Who is responsible for taking the gospel to the young people of the world if not the young Christians of this generation? Now, I'm not proud of the achievements of my generation. We are responsible for the conditions in the world today. You young people are not responsible for that. We have failed in that area. But what are you going to do? Are you going to rise to the privilege and the responsibility that is yours? There are one billion young people in Asia. And we are so near to them. We've got a a certain responsibility to them. So this is a young people's world. And uh, the young people of today, in many countries, are very responsive to the gospel. Uh, It's it's amazing the opportunities. I don't think there ever has been a day when there are such opportunities for young men and young women... In taking the gospel to the world as there are today. Uh, Many of you have had very good educations. You've got your degrees and so on. What are you going to use them for? Are you going to use them for accumulating gold? A good job? You know, gold isn't currency in heaven. The only use they can make of it in heaven, it's so valueless, the only thing they can use it for is paving the roads. Uh, Streets are paved with gold. It's it's quite valueless. And wouldn't it be a terrible thing if you gave your life to er, making good money and having a good job, and at the end you landed with a heap of road metal? Gold is not currency in heaven. No, I believe that we should invest our lives, young people should invest their lives in getting the gospel to those who have never heard it. One of our uh, missionaries was a pharmacist and he worked in a hospital in Thailand for his first term as a pharmacist. He got to know the Thai language and he loved the Thai young people and he thought, I don't want to dispense med- medicines all my life. I want to get right into work among the young people. So he went back to Scotland, his home country, and he took his doctorate in pharmacy. And all the time he was praying that God would open an opportunity for him to uh, get a position in a university in Thailand. Well, God answered his prayer. And he was appointed to the chair of pharmacy in the Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. 10,000 students, all of whom were Buddhists, because every Thai is a Buddhist. Now, there was no Christian organization working in that university at all. There were a few scattered Christians among the students, but there was no Christian movement or witness in the university. So he gathered a few of the Christians in his uh, department of, a pharmacy, and he discipled them, and uh, got them witnessing, and others came came to the Lord, and by the end of a year, he had quite a solid group, and he said, "Now, you fellows are far enough on to be left by yourself. I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go and try to form some uh, circles in other uh, other faculties." At the end of his term of service. He had started six groups in different faculties in the Chulalongkorn University among Buddhists and he founded the InterVarsity Fellowship of Thailand. One man who used the equipment and training God had given him. Two others of our missionaries were university professors in Calgary and they heard the call of God, and they gave up their positions and went to Indonesia. Now, Indonesia is in a—it is a very interesting country. It's 80 percent Mohammedan, and yet it's uh, there is freedom of religion. And the first article of the Indonesian constitution is. Every Indonesian must have a religion. They don't say what religion it's to be, but every Indonesian must have a religion. And the government, the Muslim government, undertakes to provide teachers for whatever religion the students in high schools or in universities elect to take. Well, when uh, John and his wife... They went to Indonesia. They were appointed to quite a large university in uh, Sumatra. And when he got his job description, he found to his delight that he had been appointed to teach Christianity to any students who wished to take it. And he said, for six years, I've had around 200 Mohammedan students who have taken the course in Christianity and each year about a hundred of them have turned to the Lord. You see how he invested his life. There was another time I was up in Canada at the Prairie Bible Institute. And a young lady came to me, this would be about 30 years ago I spoke now. She came to me and she said, do you think my art could be used uh, in the mission field? She, she was an art teacher in a high school there. I said, it certainly could. I said, we could make use of it in our literature program. So, in due course, she came to our mission and she learned the language and she did artwork and she found that she had a gift in writing. And after two or three years, the government approached her and asked her to assume responsibility for drawing up the curriculum for teaching Christianity in 2,000 high schools in Indonesia. Can you take that in? See, Indonesia is the fifth largest country in the world in population, up to nearly 180,000 now. And on the island of Java alone, there are one million people. Uh, A hundred million people. So 2,000 high schools is uh, only a small proportion. And for many years, she has drawn up the syllabus. She determined what scriptures are to be taught. And the government asked her also to write the notes that the teachers were to use in teaching Christianity. So that girl could have stayed and been an art teacher in... uh, in uh, Canada, and if that had been God's will, that's wonderful. She'd have been uh, out of God's will if she'd gone to Indonesia. But look at the tremendous influence, hundreds of thousands of high school students influenced because she obeyed the Lord's call. Well, it's a young people's world, and uh, the young people have got tremendous privileges and opportunities then another thing that has changed is the population of the world it took from creation to the year 1830 for the population of the world to reach 1 billion it took from 1830 to 1930 to reach 2 billion. And now it is on its way, it's between 5 and 6 billion. I heard an American commentator when I was there a year or two ago say, today somewhere in the world the 5 billionth baby will be born. And there you... You see, what a tremendous change is taking place. And by the the year 2000, there'll be probably 7 billion people. Now, we can't take those numbers in. They're beyond our understanding, but at least you can get some idea of the way the task has increased. Do you know, at the rate of the increase in population in the world today, Forget all the people that are alive now, it would take 1,350 new missionaries every year just to cater for the increase in population. Now, those are serious figures. China, when Hudson Taylor went there in 1853, had 350 known Christians. That was all, and the population was about 250 million. Now it's between 1 uh, 1000 1, million, and uh, 1100 million. Here, have these, there's been this vast increase, and we of this generation have been entrusted by the Lord with the privilege of getting the gospel to them. What a privilege and what an opportunity. Another of the changes is the way in which the population of the world has changed from agricultural to urban. Uh, In the year 1800. About 10% of the world's people live in cities. Today it's over 50% and it's estimated by the end of the century it will be between 70 and 80% of people will be in the great cities of the world. There are now More than 240 cities of more than 1 million people, and most of them are in third world countries. The tremendous mega cities. Tokyo, Yokohama, which are joined, have got as many people in them as the population. uh, Well, Tokyo's got as many, probably, as the whole population of Australia. Mexico City, there's 18 and a half. million people in one city. And uh, this poses a tremendous problem and also a wonderful opportunity. Do you think God is competent to deal with that situation? It seems as though as you read the scriptures God has limited himself to his people He doesn't send angels to spread the gospel. He's entrusted us with it. And uh, here are these vast numbers of people who are crowding into the great cities of the world. And uh, we have our responsibility. Well, there are some of the changes. And so you can see that missionary work is not growing easier The doors are closing in many ways to Western missionaries. But God has got his own strategy. And while the doors close in one way, they're opening in another way. I was in Hong Kong recently and had the privilege of speaking to 40 um, professional people and students who are going into China as tent makers. Uh, they were going to take positions in universities or going as students to Chinese universities. They came from nine different countries. There, they turned their back on uh, the allurements of their own society and they were going in there. They were they had a bit of trepidation about it too, but they were doing that. And uh, there are large numbers of Christians who are doing that kind of thing and are discharging their missionary responsibility in that way. Now, I've given you the changes and the problems, but there have been some other very wonderful changes. And one of them is the way in which third world missionaries are coming to the fore. I had this brought before me very dramatically in in the 1960s when I was in Singapore. The students at the Singapore University were holding a retreat and they asked me if I would give the Bible studies, which I did. Then when I came to the last night, they said, Mr. Sanders, we'd like you to give a missionary message. We never hear a missionary message, we're a mission field. But we'd like to know what's going on in other parts of the world. So I gave them an overview of missions, and uh, but I didn't expect, I, I should have expected it, but I didn't expect what happened. After I'd finished speaking, 15 young people came up and they said, we would like to become missionaries. How do we go about it? Well, that's what missionaries work all about. It's all about producing missionaries, but... Uh, uh, I I was taken rather by surprise at the spontaneous way in which they came. So I spoke to them that night. And then during the week I heard a knock at my door and I opened it and there spilling down the stairs were 15 young people. They said, we want to hear more about how we can become missionaries. Well, I spent the evening with them and tried to help them, and then we turned on a conference and about 50 of the students came, and quite a number of those young people are missionaries today. Uh, Then I was invited to go to Japan. Uh, Pastor Hattori, who is uh, a radio, very noted radio pastor in Japan, wrote to me and he said, we Japanese for too long have been inward looking. We've been concerned with our own problems and God knows our problems are great enough. But he said I believe what our churches need is to have their eyes lifted and see the fields white already to harvest. Could you come and have some meetings to stimulate missionary interest in the churches? Well, I went some time later and we had very good meetings. And at the close, on the final night, the Japanese chairman, in a very low-key way, said, now, if there are any of you young people, they were mostly university students, if any of you young people are willing to give your lives to God for missionary work, come forward. And about a hundred of those young Japanese came forward. Now, that type of thing hadn't happened before. I didn't realize it, but afterwards I found out that the same thing was happening in different countries, third world countries around the world in the 60s. And uh, there began a movement of missionaries from third world countries. And it's been growing. And today there are probably about 30,000 Missionaries doing cross-cultural missionary work in various countries in the world. In some cases, as in India, they can't get money out of their country to support them. Some have, have been able to come out, but uh, the others, they're going to other linguistic groups in their own country and taking the gospel to them. Uh, but this movement is growing very rapidly. And at a time when our Western recruitment of missionaries is, is uh, slipping, God is raising up very fine young men and women from these countries. And I tell you, they're fine people too, very well qualified and uh, very competent as missionaries. So that's one of the very encouraging things that is taking place. And uh, as you go around Asian countries now, you find that the young people have got a real sense of their responsibility. And they don't play around at it. They really give themselves to preparing for the work God has for them. And then what happened in China is a tremendously encouraging thing. I said that when Hudson Taylor, the founder of the china Inland Mission, went to China in 1853, there were 350 known Christian converts in the whole of that land. Today, it's estimated, and I think reliably estimated, that there are 50 million Christians. When our... Uh, mission and all other missions had to withdraw about the year 1949-1950. There were one million uh, registered church members in China, one million. And then the bamboo curtain fell, and for many years there was very little news of anything that happened. And then suddenly in 1976, Uh, there was relaxation, and news began to filter out. We found that while the outside world didn't know what was going on there, God was moving in a mighty way. And I don't think it's wrong to say that what has happened in China is the greatest revival movement in history in one generation. When you come to think of it, what happened? What has happened in China had everything against it. Uh, there was persecution, bitter persecution. Many were murdered. There was imprisonment. All the leaders, or most of the leaders, were in prison. Bibles and Christian books were destroyed. Labor camps. People were put into labor camps, and Christians. There were no churches all the churches were closed there were meetings were illegal three or four, more than 3 people to meet was illegal uh, it was a, a, a crime to teach religion to anyone under 18 years of age so that when parents were teaching their children the bible they were committing an indictable offense There were no evangelistic crusades, no Billy Grahams going around or anything like that. There were no Bible schools or theological colleges, no training for leaders. There were very few Bibles, and there was very little Christian literature. And in a circumstance like that, the church has grown to 50 million Christians you feel encouraged? I think we've got to revise our idea of revival. We think perhaps mainly of revival in the sense of which the, uh, the great revivals of the past, the Finney revival and that kind of thing. Well, that, thank God, still goes on. But God can work in a variety of ways. And here, how... Did this revival take place through one Christian witnessing to another at the risk of their own life or their own freedom? It, it was a dangerous thing to to witness, especially to do it openly. And uh, Christians were penalized; they were uh, they weren't. Uh, not allowed to sit exams. They weren't, weren't allowed to take their degrees and so on. All that kind of thing happened. And yet, in spite of it all, God worked in a marvelous way. And the way in which the, the intelligentsia and the leaders were treated was terrible. Uh, Mr. Stephen Wong, who was in Toronto, told me his story. He was a university professor who was a very fine Christian. Because he was a Christian, he was arrested and he was set to sweep the streets. And because he was a Christian, he only got half the ration of clothing and food. And he said, I was there in winter with inadequate clothing and uh, in summer in the burning heat. And he said the last nine years, he was 21 years Arrested. He said, "In the last nine years, I went round the streets of Suzhou, pulling a cart with a rope around my neck." Well, these are the conditions, and yet God works so wonderfully. No, we 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 are very soft people, aren't we? We don't have much to suffer for Christ. But when people are in conditions like that, they know the reality of their faith in Christ and uh, it's wonderful to see what happens. And amazing things. You just think that the atheist government has opened 5,000 churches. They closed the churches, used them as stables or factories or museums and so on. I know that These churches are not all, some of them are in the hands of liberals, but an atheist government doing that. They wanted a, a book for teaching their people English literature. Do you know what they chose? This was the communist educational authorities. They chose Pilgrim's Progress. And they printed 200,000 copies of Pilgrim's Progress in English and it was sold out in three days. I think the Lord must have been just smiling up in heaven as he heard the money tinkling and the Pilgrim's Progress because it exactly suits the mind of the Chinese people. They love the pictorial and the spiritualizing. So in his own way, God has been working. So that is another of the encouraging things that has been taking place. Then in Africa, at the beginning of this century, in Africa, there were seven million known Christians. But today, what's the situation? Bishop Stephen Neal, who has written a history of missions, he said, it is by no means impossible that by the end of this century, Africa, south of the Sahara, will be 50% Christian. The United States News and World Report sent a team to go through Africa and find out the state of Christianity there. And I read the report which they wrote, and they were secular people they weren't uh, Christians, but they report they said Christianity in Africa is spreading like fire on the veldt and uh, he said they said something uh, the same as Bishop Stephen Neal did, and today there are probably nearly 200 million Christians in Africa. Now when I say, I give numbers like that, I'm not saying every one of those is born again. Uh, But they have uh, given their adherence to the Christian religion. There has been a tremendous movement. It's estimated that 16,000 every day are turning to Christ. It was my privilege in Melbourne some years ago to meet Archbishop Luwum, who was the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Uganda. This was when Idi Amin was the uh, president and you remember the terrible massacres and murders that he was responsible for. Well, Archbishop Luwum was a fine man, about six foot two or three, and a fine, upstanding man, spoke beautiful English. And, uh, and, and I was talking with him. He said, you know, 65% of the people in my country are Christian. He included Roman Catholics in that, but uh, the Roman Catholics are a very, they're a minority people. And he said, most of the the Christians are Evangelical Christians. Now there is a country with probably half of their people that would be Evangelical Christians. He went back to uh, Uganda and he stood up against Idi Amin and was murdered for his faith. But that was that is the kind of thing that is going on in africa there there are tremendous problems and one of the great problems is while there are these large numbers of people turning to the lord there are not enough mature christians to disciple them and one feels that Many of the promising people will be lost unless there are people to go. That is why one of the great needs on the mission field today is not people who will go out for a year or two years, but people who will go and learn the language, learn the culture of the people, win their confidence, and then be able to establish them and build them up in the faith. Uh, The short-term missionaries are doing a good job, but it's not the whole job. And uh, this is, I think, one of the crying needs of the missionary uh, situation today. Korea. A hundred years ago, there were practically no, uh, at the beginning of this century, there were practically no churches in Korea, only a very few. Then there came a wonderful revival, and that stirred up the opposition of the devil, and there came terrible persecution. And many of the present older leaders in Korea uh, had experience of that terrible persecution. I've spoken with some who had it. It was a terrible time, and the church was very nearly stamped out And then the war came and all missionaries left. But since the Second World War, there has been a tremendous upsurge of spiritual life. And uh, today, they've got probably one of the fastest growing churches in the world. There are 4,000 churches in Seoul, the city of Seoul alone. When I was in America last year, I was speaking, preaching in a, a Korean church. It had 500 members. And I said to the Korean pastor there, this was in Los Angeles, I said, how many Korean churches are there in California? Oh, he said, around a thousand. This is in America, around a thousand Korean churches in California. Uh, are you not encouraged as you hear what God is doing around the world? Uh, we, we, we're so used to being in a minority when uh, nothing much is happening. But uh, God is not idle. And wonderful things are taking place. 25% of the people in uh, Korea make profession of faith in Christianity, and 47% in the military forces. So, uh, when you read news about Korea, you think of not only Young E. Cho with his tremendous church, but here throughout the whole nation, there is a tremendous turning to the Lord. Indonesia, I spoke a bit about that, and the Wonderful opportunities that there are there. Uh, but there have been there have been a tremendous movement in the last two decades. There was a tremendous communist coup. It was averted by one hour. Uh, God overruled, and the communists would have taken over Indonesia if it hadn't, if it was President Soeharto hadn't climbed over a back fence and got away. The Lord overruled them. But uh, in that country since then, there has been a tremendous movement. When the Indonesian people woke up to the fact of what the communists had done, they turned on them, and I think about half a million of the communists were massacred. And that meant that the people who were afraid that they might be massacred they wanted to find some way in which they could show that they were not communists and so many of them turned to the church and the Lord used that as a means of uh, bringing many of them to himself. Uh, Between 1963 and 1966 the church increased by 40% and the last census in Indonesia, 17% in an 80% Muslim nation uh, entered themselves as Christians. Burma, a country that uh, has been closed to Western missionaries for a good many years. The country that Adoniram Judson pioneered way back to the beginning of last century. Do you know that a while back, or four or five years back, in Burma, uh, one day they had 6,200 baptisms. I don't think they were all immersed. But 6,200 baptisms in one day. There are 400,000 Christians among the Kachin. A tribal people in Burma. And uh, so one one can go on. Singapore, where our mission has its headquarters and where I spent 15 years, Singapore has sent out 365 missionaries to various countries in the world. Sixty uh, percent of the doctors are Christian, 75% of the students in the medical school are Christian. 40% of the school teachers are Christian. 38% of tertiary students are Christian. 30% of university professors are Christian. Now when I went there first, and 40 years ago, there were not very many churches at all, and many of them were very liberal in their theology. But today, what a tremendous change. There are a large number of churches and it'd be very difficult to find a church with liberal theology. The theological main theological college there was the the, the teaching was very very offbeat. But today It is an evangelical theological seminary working mightily there. In Latin America, in 1900, there were 200,000 known Christians in the whole of Latin America. In 1985, there were 34 million. And uh, in, in many of the countries, of Latin America, there is quite a virile movement toward God. Uh, in Brazil, in nineteen twenty-five there were seventy-six thousand Christians. Today there are nearly nearer twenty million Christians. The second largest church in the world is not in America, but in Brazil. Uh, so Here are some of the figures of what God is doing. 5,000 new churches are coming into being every year in Latin America. Now, what is your part in this missionary program? How deeply are you involved? Uh, Older people might say, oh, well, that's young people's business now, But it's not. It's the business of every single Christian. And every person in this church today ought to have a vital involvement in some way in the ongoing missionary enterprise. This is our privilege and our responsibility. God didn't pick out a few missionaries and say, now that's your responsibility. He laid the burden upon the whole church. And his plan is the whole gospel to be taken by the whole church to the whole world. And when the church awakens to her responsibility, then we'll see yet more wonderful things happening in the needy places of the world. What is your part? Now, have you got a regular, systematic, Prayer for the foreign mission work. I was very glad to hear from Mister. Yours that fifty copies of Operation World have been sold. Wonderful! Use them and have have as a, a, build up a a, a a group of people of. of places in which you have a special interest missionaries for whom you have a special responsibility I know that one of the greatest helps to me in my ministry has been that people have taken me on their hearts and I was telling them today about one man who prayed for me every day for 60 years I wonder how much I owe to him well Ask God to lay someone on your heart who can be your special concern and in whose ministry you can have a share. Read missionary literature. Become literate in missions. Uh, Pray intelligently. and Pray in detail. Take a missionary magazine. Not too many, but one or two so that you'll be informed. And don't only pray for the missionaries. You know, get to know the national leaders of the churches, and pray for specific people. My sister was very not. She was not total invalid, but she was not very strong. But every morning she would start to praying pretty early, and she spent two or three hours in prayer. And she wrote letters to people all around the world, and. She, they would send requests to her and she would bear them up before the Lord. Well, this is the most strategic contribution you can make. And then there is the privilege of helping young people train for missionary service. It's very interesting, if you read the New Testament, nobody ever volunteered for missionary service in the New Testament. That's rather striking, isn't it? Uh, It's not the way we go about it now, because so many churches are dead that uh, they would never send them out. But it was the, the Lord stirred up the leaders. The Lord said to the leaders of the church at Antioch, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Spirit called the person and then the Lord said to the church, Now you set them apart and you lay your hands on them and identify yourself with them and you support them pray for them. And in that way, uh, the church of Antioch grew. You know, the very interesting thing about the church of Antioch, by the way, when do I stop? (laughs) Five minutes more. <laughs> the, church, the church at Antioch was the great missionary center of the world in that day. But that didn't mean that they neglected their local witness. Uh, Chrysostom said at one period there were 100,000 Christians in Antioch. And another of the old authorities said one person in two in Antioch was a Christian. Now here was the church who had a vibrant missionary ministry. They also had a vibrant local witness. They didn't uh, confine their interest and concern to the far off people, but to people round about them. And I, I think that this will be true. I watched in the church in which I belong. I watched a, a very interesting thing. As the interest of the church grew in foreign missions, the giving for local uh, local expenses and so on went, and the graph as the graph went up, they both went up together. Giving to missions didn't mean that there wasn't sufficient for, for the local work and outreach, but the two went together. God's blessing rested on the church that had the missionary arm and the sense of responsibility for the local work too. Well, those are some ways in which you can have your interest. And just, I close with this. when our missionaries were turned out of China some of them went to the Philippines and uh, they had to learn languages and some of them went to the island of Mindoro and they went to a tribe that had never had any missionary work didn't know anything about the gospel when I was there one time visiting them I was up in the, the mountains and in a little bamboo hut where one of the missionaries was living and uh, We heard a cough outside. That's the way you knock at the door when there's no door to knock at. (laughs) And uh, I went out, and here's a little old lady. She had a beautiful toothless grin, and she was just skin and bone, but she was a very radiant person. She had a a bunch of bananas for this poor uh, needy person. (laughs) But that old lady was the first person to believe among this whole tribe of people. When she was being baptized, the man who was baptizing her said, do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again? She said, of course I do. And wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? My, what a challenge. Wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? You see, she'd seen her whole generation pass on and die. Her contemporaries had gone. She was the only one left. She was absolutely ready for the message when it came and opened her heart to receive it. And she said, wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? Don't let it be said that because we, any of us, were disobedient to The Lord's vision and the responsibilities laid on us. Let it not be said of us that we have deprived people of the gospel that can bring salvation to them.
1: Sanders may have answered all your questions but I know he hasn't and even if he hasn't if you prod him in the right place you'll get another lot of information so if you'd like to uh, we've got 10 or 15 minutes uh, to just uh, interact and if you'd like to um, raise an issue or have him explain something uh, then uh, let's do it now, so who'd like to just uh, introduce a, a theme or have something clarified? I told you last night to be a question time, so you should be ready. Yes, Christopher. Mr. Francis, you
0: of European countries uh, a, uh, thing, thing like in terms of political and things like that and what do you know about that issue? I'm afraid I didn't quite get it. I My hearing is not quite sharp enough. Did you get that? The? Russia, the Eastern Bloc countries have relaxed
1: things in this. Oh Bloc. yes. Do you know anymore?
0: Uh, yes, there there is a, a tremendous uh, movement going on in Russia. Uh, I think you, you, we we're reading uh, of opportunities that uh, and things that the Russian government under Gorbachev had, had done that uh, would have seemed impossible uh, not long ago. But in in many of the Iron Curtain countries in spite of the strong repression, and there's still that going on in Russia. don't think that there's religious freedom in Russia, but the work is going on in spite of the the, uh, opposition. But in Romania, I had a letter from a friend who is working in there, and there are a thousand a week turning to Christ in Romania, which has been a very repressive country. And in his letter he said, I was preaching at a wedding uh, recently when 60 people accepted Christ. Well, uh, you see, they can't hold religious services, but they can conduct weddings. And 60 people converted at a wedding. Uh, We don't look upon weddings very much as an evangelistic opportunity. But... uh, there are things like that going on in many, many of these countries. It's, it's very encouraging, and if you if you want something to pray for, uh, in the, toward the end of April, I'm going to Germany to have a conference with missionaries from behind the Iron Curtain countries. Uh, they come out for a retreat because the per- things are uh, very difficult for missionaries in those countries. They've got to be very, very careful and circumspect. And it'll be my privilege to minister to them. So take them on your heart if you think of it, and pray that the Lord will refresh and renew them to go back again to uh, to serve the Lord there.
1: Tell them where you're going to have the call.
0: Uh, the conference is going to be held in Berchtesgaden Garden,
1: where Hitler
0: had his hideout and where he committed suicide, or where he died, anyway. So that will be quite a historic uh, centre. <laughs> Any other questions? Everybody satisfied.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. I,
0: I think undoubtedly so. I I think that that God's judgment comes in letting us go our own way. I don't think that necessarily we, we need to think of it only as God coming down fire and brimstone. But he's allowing us to spoil our ecology and we're bringing it on our own selves and we're bringing our own judgment because of our sin. And I think that the falling moral standards and all that's happening it's uh, God is uh, allowing us to punish ourselves it's the outcome of the, the sin that brought it on did you want to say so there's no question about uh, in the West there is a hardness and an unresponsiveness but on the other hand I think we don't need to we we should not underestimate what God is doing even in Western countries uh, there is a great deal going on behind the scenes that we don't see uh, and we don't need to be entirely discouraged but when people consistently refuse to receive the message the Holy Spirit just uh, allows he withdraws you remember when Paul said since you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life I will turn to the Gentiles He, he left them and uh when, when the set of a people, of a nation, is against God, he, he gives them up to their own devices, Paul says. And I, I think that's what, that's what happened. And you don't see a, a great deal going on in the Western countries. But the, the verse in Chronicles 7.14 is still true. If my people who are called by my name will... Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear and will heal their land. That, that's still true. and uh, But the trouble is that people don't do that. Uh, we are developing a generation of people who don't pray uh, at length. We pray sentence prayers, short prayers. In my boyhood, we had a prayer meeting in our own home that went on for three months every night. Uh, that was unusual, but uh, but nowadays you you don't you don't get down and pray for an hour, two hours, three hours. And if we're not sufficiently in earnest, why should God be in earnest? If we if we can do without it, well, He lets us do without it. But he says, if you're in deep earnest and you pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I'll hear. But it seems as though the great movement of the Spirit are in the, these other lands. But there's no reason why it shouldn't come in our lands if there are sufficient people who are concerned. The unreached are in three great blocks: the Muslims, for example. Uh, many of the Muslim countries, you, you can't get in. The only way you can get in is a tent maker. go in as a business person or a teacher or something. Uh, and yet, among, even among the, the Muslims, there are remarkable things taking place. In Indonesia, for example. Uh, one of our missionaries who had been a missionary in China when they were forced to come out, he and his wife went to Indonesia. And he prayed and asked the Lord that he would give him uh, lead him to one man in Indonesia into whom he could pour his life. And the Lord led him to a converted Muslim who was a Presbyterian evangelist. And this missionary worked with, alongside this man whom I know and there was this, a road of 50 mile stretch uh, that they worked and they would go in the evenings when they came in from the fields they'd go into a Moslem home and uh, the neighbours would gather and the place would be packed out and they'd have question and answer for hours it would go on night after night and uh at the end of four years, they left seven churches along that strip of a road composed entirely of converted Muslims. Well, then the missionary went back home and he didn't go back again. But a couple of years afterwards, I met the Indonesian evangelist and uh, I asked him how the work was going. Have you been encouraged? He said, last year I baptized... 1,500 converted Muslims. Myself, 1,500. Now that's most unusual, but there there is a sign, and there's a a breaking down in the Muslim community. Then the other great group are the Hindus, but they are in India. There are about 500 million of them, and uh, there's very, uh, very difficult. For missionaries to get in as missionaries to India, so that they are uh, they can be reached again only by those who go in as uh, if they can get in as tent makers. Uh, there are there are large numbers of of, uh, of Hindus in other places too. Then, of course, China is the other the other uh, great block of unreached peoples. There are 67 uh, groups other than Chinese in China. There are large numbers of Muslims in China and uh, lots of different tribal groups. But uh, again, you can get into that group only by going in as a professional or teacher, a businessman. but uh, there are wonderful opportunities. I was talking to a businessman from New Zealand. he does a lot of business with the Chinese government, he said, on my last visit, I was invited to a state banquet. And he said, on my left was the Minister of Agriculture, and on my right was the Minister of Justice, two very important people in the communist hierarchy. He said, I talked to them on business matters first, and then he said, I was able to turn it to religion. And he said, I had the opportunity of presenting a full gospel witness to the minister of agriculture. And he said the minister of justice had his head cocked round the corner listening in all the time. And he said, I never go to China without having the opportunity of witnessing to some of the higher people there. So here you have the Opportunity that comes to those who are prepared to go in in that way, to qualify in some way to uh, take the gospel incidentally. You can't go in as an evangelist.